Welcome to Dev Policy Talks, coming to you from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. In this webinar recorded in August 2020, Michael Clemens, Director of Migration Displacement and Humanitarian Policy at the Centre for Global Development, discusses his recent paper on skill development and regional mobility, which estimates that by 2050, the demand for vocational workers in Australia will exceed supply by over 2 million. To meet that demand, Satish Chand, Professor of Finance in the School of Business at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, proposes the development of a Pacific Schools Partnership to facilitate schools creation across Pacific Island countries and help plug the schools gap through migration. The webinar is presented together with the Centre for Global Development and is chaired by Ryan Edwards, Deputy Director at the Development Policy Centre. So I'm Ryan Edwards, I'm Deputy Director of the Development Policy Centre and hosting with me here, I have Arachika Okazaki. We're thrilled that today's talk is joint with our good friends at the Centre for Global Development in Washington, DC. For those of you unfamiliar with our centre, um, we're a think tank focused on research and practical initiatives to improve the effectiveness of Australian aid to support the development of PNG and the Pacific Island region and to contribute to better global development policy. We were established in September 2020, 2010 and are celebrating our 10th birthday this year. Since our regular events like the Pacific Update in Fiji have been cancelled due to the coronavirus, we have introduced these monthly labour mobility webinars, which are also a particularly great way to connect our region to some of the world's best thinkers without those expensive Canberra flights that we all dread. So I'm delighted to have joining us today Satish Chand and Michael Clemens. Satish is Professor of Finance at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, a non-resident fellow at the Centre for Global Development and an adjunct professor here with us at the Crawford School. Michael is Director of Migration, Displacement and Humanitarian Policy and a Senior Fellow at the Centre for Global Development. And I'll, I'll be quick here, for anyone interested in migration research and policy, particularly in the Pacific, they both should absolutely need no introduction. And yeah, we're honoured to have them both with us today. Today they're going to present two new papers. The first one is on labour mobility and vocational skill and it introduces an important and insightful new framework for thinking about future demand and most importantly related policy decisions. The second paper brings to a boil a long-standing research and policy engagement agenda by both of these guys on skills partnerships with a focus on our region and on suggesting a fruitful way forward. I know we do have with us in the room many people with a lot of knowledge and experience working on these issues and so we just also want to emphasize that Michael and Satish are particularly keen for feedback from the group on all matters related to the work. We will hold most if not all questions until the end of the presentations when we'll have a Q&A. Michael will go first for 15 to 20 minutes and then Satish and over to you Michael. Thank you so much, Ryan, for the invitation. And I'm just very grateful to all of you for joining us and taking time from a world full of a lot of short-term worries to talk about a very big uh, long-term issue. Satish Chand and I are going to, in about half an hour, make an economic case for greater and better skilled labor mobility between Pacific Island countries and Australia over the next generation focusing on uh, uh, vocational skill when I'm talking about skilled labor. I'm going to start talking about uh, supply and demand. Satish is going to pick up and talk about the really interesting part, which is policy innovations to, uh, to make that market. So the question I want to start with is, as the Australian economy grows over the next 30 years, 
what is a reasonable expectation, not a forecast or a prediction, but a reasonable scenario for the demand, the change in demand for vocationally skilled labor. And to ask that question in a useful way, I want to bring in uh, three tools from economics that I think can be helpful. So the question is, uh, so the first of those tools is the degree of substitutability between different types of labor, different inputs to production. And here I'm going to focus on vocationally educated labor on the horizontal axis that you're looking at and uh, highly educated labor, labor on the vertical axis that you are looking at. And I'm going to put up a bunch of uh, graphs over the next couple of minutes that will be familiar to those of you who took an unfortunate number of economics classes, but I'm also just going to say in, uh, in plain English uh, what, they, uh, what they mean, uh, at least in the, the American version of, uh, of plain English. So as an economy grows, what kind of assumptions could we make about, about uh, substitutability between different types of labor that fuel that growth? Well, at, at one extreme, we, we could believe that there is no possibility of substitution. What if we believe that? Well, uh, in order to get uh, twice as much output from an economy, twice as much GDP, that means you would need to employ twice as many vocationally skilled workers as you did before and twice as many highly educated workers as you did uh, before. So here we're thinking about the, the economy, the, 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 the grand recipe of the economy as combining vocationally skilled labor and highly skilled labor, uh, kind of like a recipe for cookies, combines eggs and sugar. Uh, if you want double the output of cookies, it's not enough to just double the, the, double the eggs, you need to double the sugar as well. And they're going to stay in fixed proportions, which is the, uh, the, the slope of this diagonal uh, blue line that you're looking at. And if you're willing to assume, to, to make this wild assumption, then the, the degree of increase in demand for vocationally skilled labor is easy to read off this graph as the economy moves up and to the right to higher and higher levels of output. Now at another extreme, uh, we'd get a very different answer if we assume perfect substitution between these two types of labor. We could imagine that as output of the, of the economy grows up and to the right, you could get double the GDP by, by doubling the, the, uh, the inputs of each type of labor, but you could also uh, substitute a handful of additional highly skilled laborers for a larger number of vocationally skill, skilled labor. And here we're thinking about these two types of, of inputs uh, in the way that you would think about large and small eggs going into a cookie recipe. They're, they're all eggs, so if, you're, if, if you can find a way to use an additional large egg, you can reduce demand for two or three small eggs and you're going to get the same amount of, of cookies. And in, in that case, you can see that the, the increase in demand associated with a, a a, a given rise in, in the size of the economy could be a lot less uh, as the technology uh, with which the, the national economy combines these inputs changes, the ratio of the, of the employment of the two different types of labor changes. And in fact, if, it change, if that ratio changes a lot, you could even see a falling demand for vocationally educated labor associated with economic growth. So uh, any forecast for or a demand of this kind in the future is, needs to take some position about the substitutability of these, of these different types of labor. Uh, we don't assume, in the analysis you'll see, uh, fixed proportions. Uh, we don't assume that the proportions can go wherever they like. We take a middle of the road assumption, which is that the, the, the ratio of employment in the, in the different types of labor is going to shift over the years to come uh, at a similar rate as, as it has been shifting uh, in years past. And it really has shifted uh, quite a lot 
here you're looking at uh, data from the last four censuses of Australia on the left-hand side, right in the middle, that vertical line is, uh, is where we are 2020. Everything to the right of that is just a geometric extrapolation of that trend. And the vertical axis here is the ratio of workers with, uh, with vocational education uh, in the Australian economy to the, to the number of workers with, uh, with higher education. That was 10 in the 1980s, and now it's around two. So really, uh, technological change over the last few decades has meant a, a, a greatly reduced relative demand for people with vocational skill. And it might be attempting to, to look at this and say, well, you know, going into the future, there's not going to be much demand in the Australian for, uh, economy for vocational skill. And, and why are we talking about labor mobility at this skill level? Well, this uh, looking at the, the education that workers have uh, can give you a distorted picture of the uh, actual demand for the skill content of labor in the economy. And, and this is where I want to bring in the second tool from economics. And this has been the focus of a, of a major research program led by uh, uh, David Otter and uh, Daron Ajamolu of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, along with uh, many others, in making this uh, an important distinction between the education level that workers uh, have, formal training that they, they possess, and the tasks that they uh, carry out in the economy. And, and obviously, these are these are two different things. You could think of a a basic task uh, defined by the Australian Bureau of Statistics as one that requires that, that does not require higher education uh, in order to perform it. That is, it it requires a secondary education certificate for or less, such as a welder first class, or a complex task uh, which the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, uh, determines uh, requires uh, higher education of some kind. Here, that's diploma, uh, associate degree, or more or equivalent experience, like say a cinematographer. And certainly those, uh, those overlap with the educational levels of workers who perform them, but th there are many people uh, with higher than certificate three education working as first class welders in Australia. There are many people working at uh, uh, jobs like cinematographer that have a high skill content who actually started out with vocational training and built up their skills uh, uh, in practice and you get a much clearer and sharper picture of the demand for skills in economy by looking directly at the at the, the the skill content of the jobs they are doing. It's much more data intensive than than looking just at the degrees people have. But uh, but these economists have have developed a, a frameworks to look at it. Here's an example of of uh, the difference it can make. This is the same time period you saw before. Last four censuses on the left. Today in the middle. The next thirty years. Uh, geometric extrapolation uh, to the right of that. This, the vertical axis here is the percent of all employment in Australia in the censuses. And that blue line is the fraction of all employment that is uh, vocational level. It's uh, their basic tasks performed by people who have vocational training uh, and not more than that. That, that is, the, these are, this does not include people who uh, have experienced occupational downgrading. These are people performing vocational tasks who have the, who have the, the, uh, the appropriate uh, level of formal training. That is really disappearing, uh, as you as you similarly saw in the in the early graph. But if you look at the the tasks being performed, a substantial fraction of the of the of the workforce is performing basic tasks and will continue to perform basic tasks decades into the future. The demand for many jobs is not going anywhere. Uh, and to uh, to see why, it's it's important to to grasp a. a uh, a, a third and final tool that I want to bring in before we talk about the scenarios, and that is this critical distinction between what we call fundamental and replaceable tasks in the economy. Alan Blinder and the the, the late great Alan Kruger at, at uh, Princeton University 
have done a, a, a some very helpful research classifying the the offshore ability of different tasks, different occupations, and before mentioned, David R. and, and Daron Algemolo and others have uh, been investigating the the routineness of of different tasks, different occupations, and their ability to feasibly be automated. And there is a core group of occupations that, according to their measures, is uh, not feasibly offshoreable and not routine enough to be automated anytime soon. So here I'm talking about elder care carpentry, chefs, hairdressers, many other fundamental occupations uh, whose trends look very, very different from all of these others. Welder, for example, that we talked about before is, uh, is classified by, by these researchers as being both offshoreable uh, and, uh, and in the process of, of being automated. If you take the same time period, now we're looking at the, the ratio of uh, workers performing basic tasks to workers performing complex tasks in the Australian economy. This is for all basic workers in, in white, that's plummeting towards zero. But if you carve out the fundamental tasks, that's in green, that's, that's barely budged over the last 30 years. That is a, 30 years ago, there was about one fundamental worker for every complex worker in Australia. It's the same today and they're not going anywhere uh, until people figure out a way to automate or offshore, offshore uh, hairdressing and, and, and elder care. So that, I just wanted to, to open up the hood a little bit to, to get an intuitive sense of why these, uh, th these uh, these tasks are, are not dis disappearing to the extent that uh, that some slices of the data might might make them look. With these through three uh, tools in place, we can build some simple scenarios. It's uh, it's it's a it's just a back of the envelope calculation, but it's a it's a highly informed back of the envelope calculation. Start with a growth scenario. Our, our baseline is 2.1 percent growth over the next 30 years, real GDP per capita. Where did we get that number? We take the, the, the actual growth in, in that figure for Australia over the last 30 years and say, okay, let's uh, have that continue for the next 30 years. That would be 1.8%. We need to bump that up by 0.3% to compensate for the acceleration of demographic change. That will mean there will be relatively fewer workers to Australians over the next 30 years. That's where we get 2.1% uh, growth. That gives you a, uh, using the, the relationship over the past 30 years between economic growth and the demand for complex tasks, tasks requiring higher education, you can get a, a scenario for the demand for those tasks 10, 20, 30 years into the future, using the assumptions about substitutability between those workers and vocationally skilled workers, you can get a scenario for demand for vocational skill 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Lastly, compare that demand to the diminishing native supply uh, of vocational tasks, and you get a skill gap. And here's what that looks like. The horizontal axis here is time, starting in 2016, which is the, the last census year where we have the granular data to, uh, to start this exercise. Then 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050 at the, at the outside. This is millions of, vocationally, of workers performing vocationally skilled tasks on the vertical axis, zero in the middle. That white line is the additional demand that these assumptions mean would be required to fuel 2.1% real GDP per capita growth over that period. Uh, that red line is the diminishing native supply of uh, workers performing those tasks without downskilling. Uh, and there's only a handful of ways to bridge this gap which is very large. You see in the early 2030s, it's about a million uh, workers, uh, a gap between these two lines. And by 2050, it's about 2 million workers. You, you could bridge that gap by 
lower economic growth. Australia is just poorer by 2050 than it otherwise would have been. That would reduce the gap. You can bridge that gap by uh, some uh, now unforeseen, very large uh, uh, step change in, in technology, for example, that allows the automation or offshoring of, uh, of hairdressing and, uh, and elder care, which we, we, we don't believe is likely in, the, in this near term. You can have uh, large-scale native occupational downgrading, which is that these, this, uh, the demand for, for these positions can be met by natives who have higher skills than is commensurate to the job or labor mobility. Uh, and and th this really underscores to me the, uh, the, the, the magnitude of the, of, the, of the opportunity to make everybody uh, in, in Australia collectively better off with labor mobility because the, the other uh, three options that I listed are, are either unlikely or undesirable. Now, I haven't said a word about the Pacific. Uh, it's, it's time for me to, to, to shut up, but I just want to mention why draw these workers from the Pacific at all? Well, there are many, many reasons. Uh, first of all, I just want to underscore, and I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, how many of you have seen these numbers before, but they were incredibly striking to, to me. This is, again, the last four censuses of Australia. This is the fraction of the labor force of Australia that is uh, foreign-born from all countries. That has been growing towards about 30%, uh, regardless of skill level. This is for tasks now, not, uh, not, uh, not occupation, or not, not education. But if you, if you carve out Pacific countries of birth, Pacific island countries, it's so small, you can, I'm sure you can't even read it at the bottom of that graph there. Uh, essentially, uh, Pacific labor mobility in this sense is an experiment that hasn't been tried. And just for comparison of scale, those, uh, those 2 million uh, workers by, by 2050, if they were to be all Pacific, uh, that would be about 6% uh, on this graph. So, so not even uh, largely closing the gap with uh, with the other countries that have uh, that have been supplying labor to uh, to to Australia, but uh, but a, but a, but a substantial rise. Now, even in recent memory, it would have been physically impossible for skilled labor mobility of this kind to happen in the region because there just wasn't uh, enough human capital in the region. That's that's totally different now. Uh, th these are projections of a a group of uh, demographers in in Switzerland for the, the working age population and the working age population with secondary or vocational education in the Pacific Island countries, now over 3 million uh, and are projected to more than double to 7 million by 2050. That is in, in, in principle, and this is not a recommendation, but in principle, it would be possible to fill that entire skill gap uh, with even a minor fraction of, the, of the, the stock of human capital that is just in this region. And, that, and that's quite different than, than, than uh, 20, 10, or even five years ago. It's really going to be a, a sharply changing picture of, of, of regional skill over this time period. Of course, those rising skills are just one of many, many reasons to be looking at the, at the Pacific when we consider these, uh, these skill gaps. There's certainly a political opportunity at the moment with the advent of the, the PLS, the PLF, the, the, the Seasonal Worker Program. Uh, a week ago, the Comprehensive Strategic and Economic Partnership with PNG. There is, uh, you know, as a, I don't know how much Australians talk honestly about this with a foreigner like me, but uh, uh, you know, people will pull you aside often and talk about a geopolitical interest in engaging more deeply with island nations where China is aggressively engaging at the moment and will certainly be doing so in the future. There's, there's a clear development policy interest in the region. Just to take one of many examples, before the current crisis, Tongans were earning uh, twice as much from the Australian Seasonal Worker Program as 
all of Tonga was earning from all of its exports. So labor mobility is a first order determinant of economic development in the region. There's an obvious link to climate change mitigation policy where Australia has been a leader in the region. And I haven't even mentioned the historical ties, uh, linguistic ties, cultural ties, and geographic ties that make it quite, uh, quite amazing that, that PNG, which in my lifetime was Australian territory, uh, faces much the same uh, immigration policy as, as Nepal or, or, or Bolivia. And, and really that, that, that highlights that there's an opportunity to do, uh, to do much better. Uh, with that, I want to uh, turn it over to, uh, to Satish to talk about the, the really interesting part, which is policy. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Um, look, uh, thanks, Michael, for the presentation. Um, Michael is always a breath of fresh air. I, I enjoy working with him. Um, and, it, you know, this is a nice segue from where Michael left off because we're looking at we're looking at how, how to improve supply and what are the opportunities uh, for skilled migrants out of the Pacific. So my focus here or the focus for our second paper is on supply. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be looking at how uh, the demand that Michael just talked about could be met from the Pacific. And I will be using the global skills partnership and a refinement of that in terms of the Pacific skills partnership to, to do that. We will be using the opportunities for economic arbitrage through mobility of skilled workers. And just in the interest of time, let me say uh, what our ideal scenario would be for the Pacific Island Forum. So this is the Pacific Island countries together with Australia and New Zealand. Um, the ideal world would be a fluid and a deeply integrated labor market um, that is where upskilling is sustainably funded. So you want to have sustainable financing of upskilling of our youth. Uh, all of that are founded on gains uh, to the source nation, to the host nation, and to the individual, the individual migrant. Plus, we're looking at an ideal world where we have the circulation of workers throughout the region for employment, for upskilling. Now, just on the Global Skills Partnership, I'm assuming most of us um, have some familiarity with this. So this goes back to Michael. So this is Michael's innovation where you basically have a bilateral scheme where you have a destination country that is looking for workers, say Australia, and I'll give you an example of this in a minute, which identifies an origin country um, to, to fill that, that gap, uh, it, it then funds the training, provides the technology, the training is done at origin so that workers could move to destination to fill that void in the market, but at the same time also supplement skills at origin. So this is the global skills partnership, which, which, which provides benefits to each participant. So the destination country uh, gains by having the migrants, uh, by having the skill gaps being plugged, by having a regulated migration scheme. The origin benefits through having training facilities over there, uh, increase in human capital at home uh, through remittances and a reduced pressure on the labor market. So you could think of the Pacific as fitting in that mold pretty well. The individuals also gain, those guys who stay home uh, have skills and they, have, they earn income. The folks who move abroad also have skills and earn income, but they also have the ability to legally um, go and work abroad. So we build on this, uh, on the Pacific Skills Partnership. I must show you this slide. This is more for marketing, and this is for Helen Dempster, who's the, who's the guru on this. If I don't show you this slide, she, she's probably going to kill me. But if you have more questions on that, Helen would be the right person. 
Now, within the Pacific, I don't think you could you could blame Australia or New Zealand, for that matter, on not trying multiple schemes. Uh, both Australia and New Zealand have always been migrant nations, so they have experimented a lot over the last half a century, or particularly the last two decades, uh, starting off with Kaini. This is a Kiribati Australia nursing initiative, which started in 2004 where nurses or youth from Kiribati were brought to Australia to be trained as nurses for employment both in Australia and in Kiribati. So very similar to what the GSP had thought about, or this is Michael's sort of creation, except that the training was done in Australia. The scheme ended in 2014 because it was, it was deemed as not being highly successful for two reasons. And I want you to remember both these reasons. The first is, that financially it wasn't viable. It was a very expensive scheme, according to the folks who evaluated the scheme. And two, the success of Kani in facilitating mobility of nurses for employment in Australia was deemed to be low. So on those two grounds, the scheme was brought to an end. Um, subsequent to that, or while Kani was still in place, the Australia Pacific Technical College was created. So. This was a college to provide technical and vocational education, very much like what Michael had talked about earlier. So this is our first paper. But in this case, the campuses were based in the Pacific Islands. In fact, they were in five countries, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Samoa, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu, again, to supplement the stock of skills at home, but also to feed a flow for foreign employment. So particularly Australia and New Zealand. Now, this scheme is still ongoing, but the evaluation, the interim evaluation comes to very similar conclusions to those of Kani in that it's an expensive scheme and two, it hasn't had that much of a success in facilitating mobility. Now, the third one, which is slightly different is the designated area migration agreement. So these are designated areas, largely rural and regional Australia, where employers can get workers from all over the world. So this is non-discriminatory. Kani and APTC are Pacific specific. Dharma is for anywhere in the world. The scheme started in 2014, ended in 2018, again for the reason that it wasn't all that successful in attracting workers into those regions. Now, the fourth one is the Pacific Labor Scheme, which Michael mentioned uh, very briefly. This started in 2018, again, for skilled and semi-skilled workers from the Pacific to come and work in Australia. The scheme is still ongoing, but the numbers are pretty small. The fifth one is USP, which is um, the University of the South Pacific. It's a, it's a university owned by a dozen island member countries where Australia and New Zealand contribute, but they're not owners of the university. Uh, that has provided graduate education for the region as a whole, but largely for nationals from these member countries, though there has been some mobility as a result of USP, I'm one of those. And then finally, as of just two weeks ago, we have this Australia, PNG Australia Comprehensive Strategic and Economic Partnership. It's comprehensive, it includes strategic, so the sort of issues that Michael finished up with, but it does have labor mobility as a core component of that partnership. And, and, and this continues. So as I say, in Australia, insofar as uh, skills partnerships are concerned between Australia and New Zealand on the one hand and the Pacific Islands, it is still ongoing. 
what we are going to look at, and this is Michael and I, uh, we want to sort of exploit opportunities for economic arbitrage through mobility of workers. So I'm going to show you some numbers in a minute. So we, we, we're we going to look at three specific uh, figures. So we're going to look at the value of the marginal product of an Australian quality worker. We underline Australian quality because we're going to be comparing like for like. We want to look at the marginal cost of training an Australian quality worker at home, again, like for like. And then we're going to use those two figures to work out economic arbitrage or the factor for economic arbitrage. So it's going to be a product of the difference in remuneration and the cost of training. We have quite a few occupations in mind, but so we're going to look at employers who employ workers in so far as possible across national borders. We're going to be looking at occupations that are comparable across national borders, and we are going to be using the Australia and New Zealand classification of occupations to try and link these occupations across national borders. And for now, I'm just going to be showing you figures for three occupations, those for IT graduates, those for accounting graduates, and those for chefs. And we're going to be looking at the factor for economic arbitrage for each one of those. Now, in the interest of time, I'll go over the one for um, graduate accountants closely just to get the figures through. So if you're looking at the multinational sector and we're looking at the big four accounting firms who hire graduate accountants to do very similar jobs across this country. So in Australia, these accountants get paid the median um, salary, total uh, remuneration is $60,000, but you can notice the figures differ quite a lot across these countries. So in, 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 um, in New Zealand, they get paid 80% uh, of the Australian salary. Uh, in, in Solomon Islands, 12% uh, and so on. So the, 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 the total remuneration differs considerably across these countries. If you look at the cost of acquiring accounting qualifications across these countries, again, we're looking at Australia and New Zealand. So we're looking at the cost for local. So this is the marginal cost of training. So we are using the local rates. So for Australia, this will be the folks who are on the Commonwealth Scholarship Scheme or Commonwealth Support Program. New Zealand, uh, the fee are deregulated across universities. So we're looking at Auckland Uni. And then the Fiji National University, USP, UPNG, University of Papua New Guinea, and University of Technology um, uh, in PNG as well. Uh, we look at APTC, but APTC as yet doesn't provide accounting qualifications, though TAFEs in both Australia and New Zealand do provide accounting qualifications. So accounting straddles between TAFE and university. Again, they differ a lot in terms of costs. We look at tuition, we look at accommodation, and obviously the third one is the opportunity cost of time studying. The one that I'm going to focus on is tuition because the figures over here are a lot, lot clearer. Again, Australia, if you take that as 100%, in New Zealand, tuition is 61% of that of Australia, FNU is 27%, and so on. Look at Unitech and UPNG, they're not cheap places to study compared to, say, FNU or USP. Now, if you divided the remuneration by, I'm sorry, if you divided the tuition cost by the remuneration, you get a figure on the cost of or the number of years it would take for you to train as an accountant in terms of the remuneration you earn. So you're sort of saying, how many years of remuneration would pay for your tuition? The, the figures in red, if you can see that on the screen, um, 
For Solomon Islander, it'll take roughly 4.22 years, a bit more than four years, if you wanted to undertake accounting studies in Australia as a local, uh, then it would cost you 4.22 4 years of your remuneration. Now, if an Australian studied at FNU as a local, it will be 0 0.14 years of remuneration or two weeks of remuneration. So you could use two weeks of your total remuneration to pay your tuition fee off in, at FNU. If you take the ratio of the two, it works out to be 30, and the ratio is basically the ratio of two margins. It's the ratio of tuition in Australia vis-a-vis -vis tuition at FNU multiplied by the ratio of remuneration in Australia versus the remuneration in Solomon Island. So the, the, the difference in remuneration between Australia and FNU is 3.7, so close to a factor of four. I'm sorry, the, the difference in tuition cost between Australia and FNU is a factor of four. And that in terms of remuneration is a factor of eight. So the product of the two is 30. So you're looking at the product of the two margins. The shaded bits are the bits where people could study as local. So as a Fijian, you could study at FNU or USP as a local, but you as an Australian would never be able to study as a local at FNU. Similarly, a Solomon Islander wouldn't be able to study as a local in Australia. So if you're just looking at the shaded bits, the yellow bits, so these are for locals, then the factor for arbitrage is always less than two, uh, except for the Cook Islanders who go through New Zealand to study in Australia, which is two and a half, but for the rest of them, it's two. The, the, the message being that the biggest room for arbitrage are in the non-shaded regions, meaning that these are where regulatory barriers stop people from moving to study or to work. Now we do a similar sort of exercise for IT graduates and you get a factor of 25, but the surprising figure is that for chefs, so again goes back to our first paper that Michael just talked about, the factor for arbitrage is 86. And the big, um, the, the, the big margins are both in terms of training and in terms of remuneration. So if you're looking at uh, at training, the, 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 the factor for arbitrage is 8.8 .8, and that for remuneration is 9.8. So, so these are massive. And as I say, we have just gone through three occupations. We wanna do quite a few more. So this is part of ongoing work. But the lessons we have in terms of policy, and this is where I wanna finish off. The, 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 the lessons are the following. The first message that we get, and this is out of the first paper, is that the demand for skills in Australia will increase. Uh, and, uh, and, and our first paper presents figures for that. So that's the take home from there. I know the Australian treasurer, the current one, uh, as well as the previous ones have been encouraging Australian families to, um, to reproduce more. It doesn't look like, you know, the economic incentives for reproducing for Australian families are all that great. The, the policy challenges in terms of matching demand with supply. So the, the first paper sort of shows you the demand. The second one looks at supply. And what we have uh, here in terms of supply is supply via the market through first sustainable finance. So we argue in this paper for loans from a revolving fund that funds training or upskilling. We argue for 
training to be provided by locally accredited institutions. So accredited meaning that these institutions would provide training that would be internationally recognized. And finally, in terms of secular flow of workers, we argue for a Pacific skills visa that would allow people to move across the member countries. Ryan, I think I've got a few minutes over time, so let me finish there. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Satish. Huge thank you to you both. That Both of these papers, I think, are truly first-rate work. And I, really, I like the framework that you just put forward in the second one a lot. And I'm super glad that you took the time to share it with us. And I hope the audience are as well. We can now go to some questions and discussion with the audience. Um, our first question is from Tess Newton-Kane at Griffith Uni. Thank you, Satish. Michael, my name is Tess Newton-Kane. I'm at the Griffith Asia Institute, where I lead on the Pacific Hub. Michael, it was lovely to hear from you. I've been hanging out for years to actually hear you speak in person, and obviously it's always great to catch up with Satish. I'm afraid I'm, my, my question is not a numbers question. It's very much a, a policy question, um, and I guess it stems very much from how I think about Pacific labour mobility and skills, uh, skills upskilling and skilled mobility now that I live here in Australia rather than when I lived in Vanuatu. And I guess it's about, in order for the, the, um, the, the ideal scenario that you've put forward to come about, where, what more needs to happen about moving the concept or the, the practicalities of labour mobility from the foreign policy space into the domestic policy space or more likely into a space that that bridges both of those. My feeling is that it's still very much seen as an aspect of foreign policy, but everything you've told us this morning would indicate that it needs to become much more a domestic policy conversation. So I wonder if you'd like to speak to that so a little bit more. So Tess, thanks for that question. Uh, first, I think labor mobility in Australia so far has been thought through as part of foreign policy. What we're pushing for is more uh, an economic argument for mobility of workers. So the first paper um, that that Michael that, that we we did and Michael presented basically says that there's a very strong economic case for mobility of skilled workers. Um, you know those numbers. If you believe our analysis, it basically says we would have to fill those gaps, as otherwise there would be an economic price to be paid for it. So that was the first bit. I think the conversation has to shift from foreign policy towards economics, saying that there is uh, there's a need for these workers. And then I guess the second bit is saying that we're already doing a lot in this space in terms of us upskilling the workers. So there could be a happy marriage between demand and supply. Michael? Thank you, Tess. I think it's such a such a critical point. And as of course, as an outsider on the other side of the planet, uh, uh, I, my 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 usefulness is limited. I, I really want to highlight uh, how uh, how obvious it is that it has been seen as a foreign policy issue. And, and an anecdote about that is that I I spoke personally to one of the creators of the at the, at the Australia Pacific Technical College now training coalition, uh, and essentially that was created. Uh, and people on this call might might know better than I. Uh, I believe it was two days before a meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum when the the then Prime Minister uh, called up this person and said, "Look, uh, I need something to announce 
on labor mobility because we're getting a lot of pressure from abroad of give me something and they cook this up in the space of 48 hours. It was certainly not uh, uh, driven by employers coming to the prime minister saying, look at all of the kinds of workers we can't find, how can you help us get them? The, the transition that that you're talking about from foreign policy to domestic policy is absolutely necessary for the sustainability mm. of these initiatives. There, there is hope for that uh, in the fundamentals. In that, the, the the numbers you just saw suggest that there has been a, a a tremendous transformation over the last 30 years of the of the Australian economy from a focus on uh, the Australian labour force from from a focus on on uh, on employing people at vocational skill levels to employing people at higher skill levels, that can't go on forever. Uh, the, the, there's a limit to that. And, and, and really it's concentrated in these fundamental jobs that, that, we're, that we're talking about. I think it's really intuitive uh, to, to people when they think of some kinds of employment. Uh, if you want there to be additional surgeons in, in Australia in 2050, there are going to need to be additional nurses assistants. And that, that's a, a subset of the labor market where those ratios, there just isn't a, a lot of room for, to, to play with them with, uh, with, uh, with technical change. And, uh, and that's really going to start to bite in years to come in, in that we, 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 Australia has reached the level where additional so we're, we're meeting the, the rising demand for basic tasks by natives will require uh, large-scale downskilling, large-scale occupational downgrading, that is, people working in vocational jobs uh, not using skills that they have invested a lot in and that, that in many cases the country has invested a lot in. And that's, uh, that, that's going to be something that's quite different about the next 30 years uh, than, than the past 30 years. So the, these fundamental forces are going to bite at some point, but how the politics are, are going to play out, uh, I, I, I can't say a useful word from abroad. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Our next question is from our director at the center, Stephen House. Stephen. Okay, great. Yeah, well, thanks, Ryan. And uh, thank you very much to Michael and Satish and lovely to hear from you and, and to get your views on these key issues. So I just had two questions or comments, I guess. One, you know, is just about the title, right, Meeting Australian Demand for Pacific Foreign Vocational Workers. I mean, I can see there's a lot of demand for foreign vocational workers, but I can't see the demand for the Pacific. You know, if there was a demand, then we would see it in the numbers, right? And there are all these mechanisms for bringing in uh, workers of various skill levels and people don't go to the Pacific. And, and that's basically because uh, this is uh, employer-led and uh, employers would rather go to somewhere like the Philippines or Ireland or China, just somewhere where there are a lot of people uh, and where costs are lower. Uh, so then, I, think, I mean, the kicker comes at the end, where, right at the end when Satish said you need a Pacific skills visa. Yeah, so if you give the Pacific some preferential access, that will then uh, create demand, right, because it will then be much easier. But then I just want to ask, you know, if you're going to create a new visa category for the Pacific, you know, would you create a Pacific skills category? Uh, we've been advocating to adopt what New Zealand's got, which is basically a green card sort of lottery scheme. There are some educational requirements, like you've got to finish high school. But yeah, given that the Pacific's actual comparative advantage is not really in skills, it's more in that unskilled labour, and given that that's what you're also stressing, like you need more hairdressers, you know, don't you think we'd be better off with a kind of a Pacific green card, a lottery, which seems to work well in New Zealand, rather, rather than a Pacific skills visa. Thank you. 
Sure, Stephen. It's 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 great to hear your voice after too long. Thank you so much for joining this. Uh, I I couldn't agree more with everything you said. Uh, I I I do want to highlight that that when when we talk about about uh, about skills, really we are talking about uh, we are we are stressing the the key role of vocational skills and and mm -hmm. secondary education. So the kind of, of visa that we're talking about is 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 not a, a visa for university educated people in. Uh, in in large measure, really, uh, it, it's uh, it, it is a visa for for people with secondary level training, certificate three, certificate four. Uh, that I, 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 my poor understanding of the of the PAC visa for New Zealand is is quite compatible with that, and uh, you you so helpfully uh, highlight the role of uh, of uh, that 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 recruiting costs play in skewing current recruitment uh, away from the Pacific. Uh, Satish and I were were uh, talking yesterday about the, the 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 really remarkable parallel that 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 I see and 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 you may disagree in in, in the histories of of the United States and Australia, uh, both of them ended up with this uh, very neutral uh, immigration policy towards various regions regions of the world, and I, I would claim. Uh, and again, not everybody would agree that 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 it's uh, that it, it, in the U.S. case that is an outgrowth of uh, a a historical aversion to the uh, country-specific quotas that until 1965 were used as a, as a tool of, frankly, racial engineering of the composition of the U.S. population. They were done away with in 1965, along with a raft of, of civil rights uh, legislation uh, explicitly to push back against that, that tradition. So there, there, it, has a, it has a role. I understand that uh, that let's say analogous processes uh, have taken place in the in the, the the history of dismantling the white Australia policy, but it brought us to a very strange place now, which is that uh, as I mentioned, there there have been until recently and still remain a few legal preferences for the reason for for the region, and and that in, it, there's a sense in which China, Ireland, the Philippines, Bolivia, Nepal are on the same footing with uh, a, a country that. Uh, Again, within my lifetime, was part of Australia, <laughs> and that that, uh, that that just doesn't make sense in many uh, in 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 many uh, senses, starting from the economic sense. And uh, you really uh, you, you very helpfully highlight the the role of uh, of policy in, in in counteracting what, with a, a I'd say an inappropriately globally neutral policy, uh, can make it uh, privately advantageous for employers to look outside the region. And, and just adding to what Michael said, so th this is Michael and I applying takes. Um, uh, Steve, uh, the one point that you miss um, is uh, with, the, with the Pacific Skills Visa, we're pushing very hard for circulation of workers throughout the region. And let me just sort of stress that it's not only a bilateral scheme. Um, there are some uh, skills, uh, say in Papua New Guinea, where the, the room for arbitrage is fairly significant. So. Um, so, 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 so this looks at a visa that does not only allow workers, let's say, graduates with the recognized skills deemed to be in demand, not necessarily just in Australia and New Zealand, but in the rest of the Pacific, in Papua New Guinea or Fiji or wherever, being able to move around. And if we had that facility, then our hope is that the impact of that would cascade throughout the education system, meaning that if the visa was if the visa was given or afforded to those who had those recognized skills from the accredited colleges, then you could imagine the sort of demand it would create within those countries for that sort of training. 
and possibly funded through this revolving fund. So the visa is not just a bilateral visa, say like the, the, the New Zealand one, it, it's more a regional one. We might just now take a quick moment to deal with a few of the questions open in the chat. Um, I'll, sure. I can relay them to everyone. So, so Dahal is one of our PhD students at ANU. He has two quick questions. The first one is just how do you see the proposal, which he understands the benefits of, as being different from APTC, which you deem less successful? And yeah. secondly, if you can get skilled labour from India, which is three of cost, educated in a very good Indian technical engineering college, why would you put money into technical college in the Pacific instead? That's, that's an excellent question. Thank you so much. Um, how is it different to the APTC? It's fairly, that's not that hard because APTC, uh, you would note, is funded with Australian aid. Uh, and all of the evaluations suggest that if the aid is taken away, that's the end of APTC. Though the coalition is now moving towards harnessing local institutions. So, it's very different in terms of the funding model. Also, it's different in terms of matching the demand for skills with supply. So it tries to bring the two together. So it tries to address the financial viability question together with the question of matching demand with supply. So this is looking at the work in the first paper and, 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 and integrating that with the second paper. So matching supply with demand. On India, I think that's an excellent question as to why should we not have a non-discriminatory um, immigration policy. Uh, I think the fact is, uh, you know, and this is what the Prime Minister of Australia has been saying, and so have the PM uh, uh, Marapi out of PNG, saying that, you know, there is a strong case for closer people-to-people -people link within the region. And if anything, Australia is already funding a lot of the upskilling of the workers within the region. So on both on uh, on both counts, I would sort of say, you know, there, I'm not, I'm not suggesting um, complete sort of moving away from the non-discriminatory regime, but there is a push both within the region, uh, Australia and the rest of the Pacific, on building this people-to-people -people link and investments are already taking place on that front. So, yeah, so, so, so that would be, be my response on why not India. Michael? I just want to say a word about the APTC. Uh, the, the 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 short answer there is is that the, the the APTC. How can I put this in an exactly correct way? At the at the founding of the APTC, there were factions that wanted it to be a real labor mobility program, and there were factions that did not want it to be a real labor mobility program, and the latter uh, won. Uh, in, in, in a historical sense, uh, Stephen Howes and I wrote a, a paper about exactly this question of why so many, so, why so few people were actually moving, uh, and and realizing the de jure goal of of the the, the on paper goal of the APTC when it was founded of of, of becoming a, a vehicle for skilled labor mobility. At the time, we studied that three percent of the graduates had actually um, uh, moved outside the region, and the. The original cost-benefit analysis uh, of, for the APTC in 2007 uh, actually predicted 50% of, of them moving. So there was a, just a, a vast uh, a gap there, and there are many, many reasons. But the, the fundamental reason was that it was it was created without a direct link to employers, and it was created without a visa. In fact, in 2013, I, I sat in, in Canberra and visited what was then DIAC. Uh, with a whole sheet of questions about trying to understand how they uh, how their discussions with the APTC had not resulted in in labor mobility and I, I was amazed to learn at that that meeting that the the the, uh, the high officials I, I was speaking to had, had never actually met 
with the APTC, and and th this was this was five years in to the program, uh, so that they, they there were the, the APTC lacked the support from the from the from the whole of government to build a a regional labor mobility program. So the 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 shorter answer is that the, the APTC is an is an absolutely incredible achievement. Uh, it has um, massively increased the human capital of the region. It, it is a it, it's a I just I'm, I'm so impressed with what they've done and everybody working in it. But it it has been constrained from becoming a labor mobility program, and and that's what we are talking about. Um, we'll go back to the dial-ins, uh, Henry Sherrill. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my question, Ryan. Um, hi, Michael. Hi, Satish. That was a great presentation. Um, I just have uh, a quick uh, two things to say. Uh, I think on the first part, there's maybe some ways to complement your existing analysis. There's some good Australian census data looking at temporary visas in the labour market from 2016. And that data shows that already you can find occupations in, I think, the space you're looking at, say something like nurses' assistants and uh, aged care assistants, where already uh, one in 10 people in those jobs are on some form of temporary visa in Australia. So it already shows that there's a demand for these people and that these people are predominantly students and backpackers, so they're not sponsored visa holders. Um, and I, I think that kind of proves your point that that there is this sort of, you know, the need, need if you will, uh, for these people uh, to fill this demand, and it's already there, and there's already migrants doing it. It's just, it's sort of coming through other schemes, uh, and they're not eligible. But these occupations themselves are not eligible for the sponsored visa programs. So I think that's uh, interesting. Um, and second, just on the arbitrage point, uh, Satish, I think your earnings uh, is a very sort of convincing framework. But as a former government official and former sort of political advisor, I'm not convinced at all on your educational uh, arbitrage costs because of the quality difference in the education yeah. standards. Um, I just think that I'm sure that this is discussed in the paper uh, at length. Um, but at the same time, I just think that that's, it's, it's a hard leg to stand on in terms of an evidence base, uh, whereas the earnings, I think, is, is much more convincing. So, yeah, thanks very much for the presentation. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Satish, do you want to talk about controlling for educational quality? Yeah, I mean, look, um, we, um, we, we, we do cover it in the paper. For example, when you're looking at graduate accountants, we're looking at the schemes that are accredited to, so for accountants, there's an accreditation with the Chartered Institute of Accountants in Australia. And similarly for computer graduates, it's a computer society. And finally for chefs, the program used um, by PTC are accredited by uh, Queensland TAFE. So, uh, Henry, I mean, excellent points. We have thought long and hard on this, on that very issue of quality. Um, but, you know, we do argue on the policy end that uh, accreditation would be critical for international mobility. So we do push very hard on that point. So, yeah, uh, good points. Michael, you want to add to that? So in uh, in some of the work we have been able to uh, find employers employing graduates of both the very high cost uh, uh, yeah. uh, aid funded APTC training. When I say high cost, I don't mean in an absolute sense that they 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 do the best with what they what they have, but the, I mean relative to local training institutions, mm. certainly uh, higher per student costs. Who, who employ uh, employers who employ graduates of those programs and uh, graduates mm. of of of, of, of um, 
of, of local training institutions to compare uh, the, the positions that they hold and, the, and their earnings as rough proxies for their ability to add value economically. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, we don't find large differences between mm -hmm. those, the, those two things, certainly nowhere near the, the, the order of magnitude uh, a difference in, in the training costs. So that it's, uh, it's just uh, it's it's the absolutely central point. You yeah. you Henry go right to this, the the central point of the analysis, uh, and uh, and I I don't think that it's something with uh, with uh, the the limited survey data that we're putting together we can nail down completely. Certainly not for all countries and all occupations, but in in the in the settings we've been able to look at it, the 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 the, the economic indicators of their of the positions that they hold and the and the 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 compensation that they receive from the firms they they uh, they employ uh, don't support an, an order of magnitude difference in the in the productivity of the graduates. So uh, we we are at time, but I did want to just give everyone the option to continue discussing for just a few more minutes. We do still have a few questions, if that is okay. Um, Please. I've unmuted <laughs> Gabriella de Souza, um, who also works on temporary migration in Australia. Um, thank you, thank you, Ryan. Um, great presentation, Satish and Michael. Um, really got the cogs in my brain whirring. So my question is kind of related to the one that Henry asked earlier, um, but it's around the leakage between the different visa subclasses. So, for example, we've seen the introduction of the 405 skills visa, which has happened for a long time, and the regional um, provisional visa, whereby um, migrants seeking to migrate to Australia permanently have to live in a regional area for about four years. Um, do you guys have any concerns about whether or not those two streams might crowd out, so to speak, the kind of visas that um, we're talking about with regards to Pacific skills? I mean, Satish will give an actually informed answer, but I, I'd be delighted if they did. I, uh, <laughs> when. Uh, when when we make these back of the envelope calculations of the of the skill gap, uh, really that skill gap could be could be met to to enormous uh, benefit of Australia and the region with any mix of uh, of temporary or permanent uh, uh, labor mobility. It could it could be a different mix at different times. It could be a different mix for different occupations, and I I, I see both of those channels as as meeting a, a, a similar fundamental economic goal. Even though the the other goals, such as providing uh, people with specific skills to rural areas that don't have them, obviously those are those uh, those can only be met with some of the tools you talked about and not others. Satish. No, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, look, uh, that's. I was just going to say exactly that. So I don't see these as being substitutes. And if that encourages circulation of workers with skills to meet demand wherever that may exist, then all the better. So I, I think we'll, we'll draw a line under two more questions. One is from Sonaya Yamai, um, and then the next one from Malachi at the World Bank. Oh, hi. My name's Sonia. I'm actually a Papua New Guinean. I graduated from the University of Technology in PNG. Um, first of all, I just want to thank the panel for putting this across. Thank you so much. I came across this by accident, but I'm so glad to be part of it. Um, firstly, with regards to um, the labor mobility for the unskilled workers, I just wanted to know what awareness strategies that are in place, because in Papua New Guinea, for example, the rural population, um, you know, the majority of our population is in the rural areas and they're totally uninformed. So in order to get 
that information out to them, what strategies have been put in place, because what I know is that Port Moresby seems to centralize all that information and that's where it sits. Secondly, um, with Papua New Guineans, because I live in Gatineau, in a country town, and we see a lot of um, laborers coming in for the farm works. And one of the things that really caught us was because um, the visa conditions are pretty strict and there needs to be more policies. I don't know, you have to do some changes to it because we see that some holiday makers come on visas and they don't have to pay fees for it. And if you're looking at unskilled workers from Papua New Guinea to come in and help out on the farms, um, they have to pay fees for it. Why is that? Is, why do other holiday makers in other countries, in Western countries, have it so free when Papua New Guineans in the rural areas do not have the money to actually, you know, fund their own coming? And then you put the cost on the approved employers in Australia, and that's an added burden to them considering what we're going through right now. So there needs to be a balance. Um, so are there any strategies in place with the immigration to look into that as well? Thank you. Thank you so much. Could I say a word about that, Ryan? Th th thank you for both of those questions. I, I and I'm delighted you could be you could be a, a part of this. I, I just want to say a word about the first question, which is really the, the, you you highlight the the importance of, of information and communication on the PNG side. Uh, okay. That is uh, uh, equally important on, on the Australian side. Really, we are looking for ways to uh, link Australian employers with the uh, just. Uh, tremendous resource of potential workers that can do those jobs in Australia for mutual benefit that are in the Pacific. And helping those two find each other is very difficult. Uh, getting a, an, an employer who has never uh, worked with foreign labor at all to recruit uh, in PNG, to recruit in, in Tonga, is a really big step for an employer. And it's very risky, and it's extremely difficult for small and medium enterprises. And th there's, a, there's a whole lot of informational uh, problems to be overcome, and then there are the ones on the on, on the migrant origin country side that you highlight, which are which are massive, and cer certainly in PNG, that is uh, one of the roles of linking directly uh, recruitment and training is to uh, partially, and and I, I I'm not proposing this as a solution to the massive problem you you uh, you talk about, but to partially address that problem. In that, uh, it makes it much easier for an employer rather than saying, well, I have to go around the PNG countryside recruiting mm -hmm. stuff. There is a place to go, which is uh, uh, training institutions collaborating uh, with the uh, with a, a government to government partnership. Uh, where you know you're going to get accredited skills, where you know you're going to get good workers, where you, you know you're going to get people who can be productive from the outset. Uh, and the, the, the educational institution can serve as a, as a center of, of information dissemination and uh, 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 on the, on the, uh, of the opportunity on the origin countryside in addition to, the, to imparting uh, to, to its purely educational role. Uh, and, and really uh, solving this this huge information problem, which again is in both countries, is is a big part of the need for direct links between between employers and training. Last but so not least, Malachi, do you want to be pretty quick, please? Yes, thank you. Uh, I just have a, a couple uh, questions. Um, Malachi Kafusi with uh, Skills and Employment for Tongans, uh, World Bank funded, uh, here supporting the, the project in Tonga. Uh, number one. Um, so we do understand the uh, economic case for labor mobility here in Tonga, but one of the key messages that we hear on an ongoing basis is uh, 
the ability or how do we manage the social impacts of labor mobility. Uh, for example, under the Pacific Labor Scheme, say aged care, uh, some of these individuals are going across for three years. And so we have these challenges uh, and, and um, issues with these families that have to stay back, number one, and with the Pacific Skills uh, uh, visa uh, support that. And then number two, uh, accreditation. So mm -hmm. one of the pieces of uh, the project uh, is to have our local providers uh, get accreditation through relationships uh, with uh, providers from Australia uh, and or New Zealand. And this has been quite a challenge. As you know, NZQA and Australian QA cannot or do not accredit outside of the country. And so as a project, this has been a huge uh, a challenge also. So those are my two pieces here. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll talk about the second one probably uh, because I know a bit more about that. This is the Australian Skills Qualifications Authority and getting accreditation across borders. I understand that ESQA uh, or the Australian Skills Qualifications Authority has jurisdiction only across Australia. But as Michael was saying earlier on, and we say this, I think, uh, in the paper, linking the employers with the training institution such that the training would be of value to employment abroad would be one way to do that. But I think we would we would have to look at international accreditation of those skills. So the point you raise, uh, Malachi, is an excellent one with regards to accreditation. I think that is one of the hurdles for mobility. On social impact, I know there's work being done on the seasonal worker program, but that's something that, frankly, I haven't thought about. And maybe Michael would have a few ideas on that. Well, I just think that the, uh, thank you very much, Malachi, for, for being here and for these extremely incisive questions. Two thoughts that I have is, uh, I mean, certainly about the impacts on on, on families who remain and and uh, when when people are away for long periods of time, extending to three years, maybe even renewable for more. Uh, that's something to watch very carefully. Uh, in the, uh, I know that that was a, that was an important concern. Uh, at the advent of the recognized seasonal employer scheme in, in New Zealand, a, a seasonal program, not a three-year visa of any kind, but there were major concerns about the the effects on on communities of people being away for for several months at a time, uh, of uh, uh, some people having access to to multiplying their incomes by ten while others didn't. Would that cause strife in the community? Would they be using some of the money for uh, community projects or or sort of keeping it all for conspicuous consumption? And uh, 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 David McPenzie, John Gibson, and, and, and Stephen Stillman uh, followed a, a, a group of uh, households uh, participating and, and a group of households not participating in the program in Tonga and Samoa over several years, uh, as well as going and, and interviewing um, uh, village leaders in a, in a, a mixed-method study of the impact of, the, of the, that program on people who weren't migrating. Uh, and and found 92% of the of the leaders approving of it. That many of the uh, that that many of the participants had donated large amounts of money for schools and and uh, and, uh, and and churches and other uh, community projects. Uh, that uh, that there weren't reports of, of major family strife or problems with children associated with the program, uh, and that was welcome news. But it was very important to be carefully following that and and to develop the program with that very much in mind. Another thing that comes to mind is a, a, a study that I did that, that is uh, a, a little more parallel in the kind of visa of uh, Filipinos doing uh, 
uh, participating in, in Korea's uh, employment permit system, which is a three-year uh, uh, visa to, to go work uh, often in, in, on factory floors uh, in Korea. I, I studied Filipinos participating in that program and f- found that it had really important impacts at, at home. For example, uh, uh, the, the, the families who participated in it spent a, a whole lot more money on schooling, particularly private schooling. They got a much better uh, quality education for their kids. But part of the impact my co-author Erwin Tiongson and I found was not just from the money coming in, but it was from changing the composition of the family at home. That is, uh, uh, about two-thirds of the workers were men. That meant having the, 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 the worker abroad meant that a, a, a woman was at home with greater decision power of how money got, got spent. Uh, a third of the, wor- the workers were, were women, which uh, among the married ones meant that a, a man was at home making those decisions, often for children. And, and, and a lot of that impact of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of more spending on, on kids' education came from the families where the decision-making power of women was increased by having the man away and was, was, uh, the, the reverse happened in the, in the other group where it was the woman who was away and the man had more decision-making power. I'm not implying at all that the the the, the same kind of thing would happen uh, in the in the Pacific, but that uh, that these are things to take very seriously. That that having that 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 separating families for extended periods of time can have important impacts on them. It can have important impacts on children. And and uh, absolutely, uh, as the recognized seasonal employment scheme did from the beginning, these are things that need to be very carefully monitored. So, Michael and Satish, I know you guys wanted feedback, and so I did take the liberty of letting this run Thank over. You. I hope that's okay. Thank um, you. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Thank you. DC. Um, I'm going to take the liberty of, of being chair just to add a few more quick points. The first yes, one being, importantly, that the Pacific migration schemes with Australia are really some of the only ones that do separate families. It's not common in the other ones, and it's important that we do get some consistency in this space, particularly given where Australia seeks to see itself with respect to the Pacific. It kind of stands out as one area of some low-hanging fruit to adapt. Um, just going to Malachi's comment. Um, but more generally, I want to give you guys a huge big thanks. Um, thanks so much for joining us. This was really interesting, exciting. Thank you. Um, and thank you everyone else on the line for joining us. Please do feel free to sign up to our newsletters, not just our newsletters, but of course CGDs as well. And do follow both of us. Um, and I hope to see you next time. So please join me in thanking our speakers um, for a very stimulating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. And with that, I guess we will, we will terminate this webinar. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Thanks for listening.